0: Welcome to Your Teen with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. And we're the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens.
1: And today we are talking with Dr. David Rabin, the co-founder and chief innovation officer at Apollo Neuroscience, which has developed the first scientifically validated wearable technology that actively improves energy, focus, and relaxation. And yes, we are here to tell you that it's true, using a novel touch therapy that signals safety to the brain. We love it, right, Steph?
0: Oh, my God. Life changing.
1: Okay, so but before we get to that, let's just talk a little bit about our skepticism. (laughs) Wait, did you say our? I knew you were going to say that, but come on, really seriously. Your answer. So Stephanie got it first. She got the Apollo wearable first. And I asked her how it was, and she said, "I don't know," just like that. And then she went on to say, "I think I might feel a little better, but I think it also might be because I'm thinking about it, because I'm paying attention." Do you remember saying that to me, Steph? I do. I
0: think I, I think that you took a little poet. <laughs> I think you took a little poetic oh, license. Oh,
1: I did not. I did not. <laughs>
0: I think there's a little poetic license with that. I couldn't. Which which was,
1: part? Like the tone? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> no, 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 no. I remember being on the phone and being like, "For sure, it's placebo." Because look, you you're you're not even sure that like you're just thinking about it a little bit more, right? No, it's true. It was very hard to articulate
0: is is how I felt because I knew I felt better. What I was having a very hard time understanding was why did I feel better? And I could not there was no question I felt better. That was not the, that was not a question in my head.
1: Right. I know. I remember that. That I totally remember.
0: Yeah. But I just could not discern like, was I like you like you said, that was true. Is it because I was paying attention and more in touch? with how I was feeling and being like, it's a control piece, right? Like, oh, I'm feeling anxious. Let me set that. Let me, and like anything, it's like having a plan, right? When you're feeling anxious
1: about something, when you have a plan, you tend to do a little better. I tend to do a little better. Um, I think everyone, everyone, even Dr. David Rabin would say, everyone does better with a plan. Yeah. But, so then, then I got the device and I was like, well, first of all, to be fair, every time you talked about it, I rolled my eyes. It's so, true. Even
0: I could hear them in their sockets when we were on the phone and not seeing each other. I heard the roll. Crank,
1: crank, crank. Well, I do want to say I don't play poker. I and I shouldn't. But so <laughs> my right. So my eyes That's were good. rolling because yes. it seemed it seemed it just seemed like really, this is so ridiculous. Yeah. But then I got mine and I put it on and I was like, I falling asleep at night, which I don't think for a year and a half. I put my head on the pillow. And my thoughts would start racing. And I was almost like having a newborn. Like I'd be a little sad when the sun was setting because I knew I was going to put my head on the pillow and not get a good night's sleep. <laughs> right. So I mm-hmm. wore it and and I, did, you know, I followed all the instructions about like the different modes and when you might use them. And so I put it on the relaxation mode a half hour before I went to bed. And then I put it on the sleep mode and then I fell asleep. And it's and a I beautiful tale. Day, it's a fairy tale. Yeah. I was like... Wow, I don't know if I slept well, mm-hmm. but I can't even believe that I slept. Like, I fell asleep. There wasn't like all this gaming and let me breathe and let me try to count sheep or any of those things. I really just fell asleep. It really is a game changer. And I think that
0: it's not a placebo. It is, there is definitely, it's funny, I just put mine on as we're sitting here talking. You know, there are so many times during the day where, I will say, okay, I've got to sit down and work on this proposal for a client, or I'm getting ready for a meeting, or I'm evaluating something, and I know I have to be focused. And Sue, so you and I have talked about this. Like, we both are are people who, and I think we both like this, <laughs> we are in a million things each day. and And I do like that. It keeps me energized. And so when I really have to sit down and do something for an hour and a half or two hours, like... I have to like, it's like setting an intention. It reminds me a little bit of yoga. Like when you go into these yoga classes, they would say, set an intention. I'm like, oh my God, like why am I setting an intention? But it really does help. It brings you, it centers you. And I always say like yoga is not something I do a lot. In fact, I have hardly done it in the pandemic. I was doing it a lot at the beginning. But that intention is, that's not made up stuff. Like that is real. And I find that with like when I set it on clear and focused, I'm like, oh, okay, now I can sit down and I can knock this out.
1: I wanna tell a few other stories and hopefully quickly, but one is my sister in law, she bought it, she wore it. She said, I don't know if it's working, but I did have the best meditation I've ever had. I'm like, okay. Best ever, and the only change was you're wearing this thing. And then and my husband is a doctor and skeptical about anything outside of traditional medicine, although he would not like that I just said that. So, sorry, Dan. Anyway, so I'm telling him about this, and he's like rolling his eyes, maybe twice as much as I did with you. And I said, okay, I'm going to give it to you tonight to wear, because he's a terrible sleeper. He spent 25 years getting paged all night long, as a doctor. And so he, he just never recovered. Like he's a very light sleeper and he wears a whoop band that tells him that his sleep recovery is terrible. So he's wearing that band and he puts on my band, which by the way, I want to say how generous it was that I gave it to him because I didn't sleep that night. So I gave it to him and he wakes up the next day and I say, what do you think? And he said, "Uh, I don't think so. And he looks at his whoop band which gives you data about your recovery and your sleep and all these other things. And he's like, oh, that's double than usual. Hmm. And I was like, oh, so do you think maybe it worked? No, probably not. I'd have to wear it again. And I'm like, well, you're not wearing mine again. So I need my sleep and I know it's working for me. I wanted to prove my
0: point and now you're done. (laughs)
1: Well, no, I did get him one for his birthday. So he'll he'll get it in a little bit and he'll wear it and he'll he'll see. But there's so much skepticism. If you go online and look at reviews of people on YouTube, they all start the same way. Like yeah. I really didn't believe this was gonna do anything. And then as Stephanie said, like I believe it changed my life. It's so crazy. Yeah, it is so crazy. It is so crazy. I do love it. I really do. And are you, have you bought it for anybody?
0: I have not bought it for anybody. Wait a minute. You wear yours on your ankle, right?
1: I do because I can't sleep. I like it. I would like it on my wrist during the day mm. um, and my ankle at night. But once I put it on the ankle thing, I feel like I'll just wear it there. But it does look like I'm on house, on house arrest. So I don't really wear it outside so much. But yeah, I can't sleep with things on my wrist. I can't, you know, even I mean, it's really amazing because I really don't like stuff on me. So I've really had to decide that it's so worth wearing it but I put it on my ankle. As does Dr. David Rabin. He also wears it on his ankle. And Stephanie, you're a wrist wearer. I am a wrist wearer, yes. Anyway, I don't know if we could say anything more about this other than this seemingly hokey device has double-blind studies that show that it is not placebo effect. And um, we're just really lucky that we got it. So if anybody is having trouble with any of this... So the other thing is... I also love the fact that I can just put
0: it on and I don't have to, it's not medication. It's not like, I don't know. I The simplicity of it is appealing. I think, you know, just like how I felt about, you know, some things in COVID that, you know, things were simpler. This is another thing that I just, I feel like it's it's just so easy. Put it on, set my mode. I don't know.
1: Simple. I like it. I like simplicity. All right, so up next is our conversation with the Dr. David Rabin. We can't wait for you to join us. Yes, today is Dr. David Rabin, a neuroscientist, board certified psychiatrist, health tech entrepreneur, and investor who has been studying the impact of chronic stress in humans for more than a decade. He is the co founder and chief innovation officer at Apollo Neuroscience, which has developed the first scientifically validated wearable technology that actively improves energy, focus, and relaxation using a novel touch therapy that signals safety to the brain. David, we want to learn a little bit about trauma. As a first step, is there a definition? Like, can you give us what is, you know, all of us will have our own opinion. I, you know, walked out into the street and almost got hit by a car. I had such a traumatic day. What is the the medical definition of trauma?
3: It's a very good question. I think trauma is often a very confusing word. It is, the best way to think about it is in the moment of something happening that Trauma is reflective of a description of one or multiple very challenging, difficult events, what we consider to be negative or unpleasant events, that happen in an instant or over time. And this can be something that's just hard, that we spend a lot of time focusing on trying to overcome and trying to become better at and and grow from like any kind of challenging issue that we have at work or with our families or facing traffic on the way home or any number of other things and it can also be or challenges at athletics and it can also be challenges that we feel set us back and stick with us over the long haul and it's usually the 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 challenges that sit with us that don't tend to go away that we think of as trauma because they create a sense of change that is unfolding over time after the event has happened. Just because a negative event has happened doesn't mean it's trauma, doesn't mean it's traumatic. But when we look at it as trauma, then it tends to also, by applying that word to it, it also tends to stick with us more over time. So trauma is something that unfolds.
1: Is it a little bit in the eyes of the beholder?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's it's good that you brought that up. It's not necessarily that it's just, it is in the eyes of the beholder, absolutely. It's not only that, though, in that it's something that we often think that we can determine whether something has been traumatic when it's happened, and it actually is not the case. We can't tell that something has been traumatic until we have the opportunity to look back. So that is the, so, so kind of the definition of trauma gets shifted and people use it oftentimes about like what in the way that you said where I've had a very traumatic day or I've had a lot of things that have happened to me that were traumatizing today but we can't actually know if they are traumatizing and how much they stick with us until we have the opportunity to look back you know weeks months years from the future looking back at that event to understand how that event actually affected our lives oftentimes negative challenging things will happen we'll face them we will have help We'll figure out a way around it, we'll overcome it, and we'll become stronger as a result, and we wouldn't consider that to be trauma. So it has to be something we actually take the time to look back on, not to apply in the moment. When we apply it in the moment, it's basically we're, we're actually judging the event before it's had a chance to fully unfold. So it's very important to do something that we call reserve judgment when things happen, where you take the time to sit with something as it's happening and just be with it, feel the emotions, experience the situation, and try to take it in for whatever it is and find the good in it, find the things that allow us to grow from it, and then we can look back at it days, weeks, months later, and then determine whether or not that is something that actually had a traumatizing effect on us or not.
0: Is it possible to go your entire life without experiencing trauma?
3: I personally have never met or read about anyone who has made it through their entire lifetime on this earth without experiencing some form of what we would call trauma, as in the looking back kind of trauma where they notice that there are one or multiple events that have happened that they perceive as negative or very challenging that they did not overcome that have shifted the course of their lives and for better or for what we consider worse. And I think everyone Has had to have situations like this throughout the course of their lives. Certainly, stress, without a doubt, is a critical part of all of our lives, but almost everyone has had some kind of trauma. And I think, you know, COVID, the COVID pandemic recently really taught us that because even people who didn't realize that they were struggling with how to cope with stress and how to cope with so much news and responsibility and change in routine and all these things starts to see the impact of of trauma come out over time when we realize the challenges that we're facing and how we're coping with them may actually be related to something that we've experienced in the past that we haven't necessarily completely dealt with. But I think in the, in the psychology and, and therapy world, especially if you follow any of the old psychologists and also the Eastern psychologists and where sort of Western psychology and the Eastern Asian philosophy and tribal philosophies all kind of meet, they all center around the origin of human suffering, is sort of this idea of unprocessed trauma, which is actually really relevant to your audience, because one of the biggest challenges that I know I faced as a a teenager and just growing up, and a lot of other folks face this as well, is this idea that we're taught that there's certain parts of us that we are allowed to express out into the world, and there's certain version of us that we're supposed to be putting out into the world, that other people accept, that our community and our society accept, our colleagues at school accept, and then there's the part of us who we actually are. And Gabor Matei talks about, who's a very famous trauma psychiatrist, talks about how it's actually that idea that we are taught not to present our whole selves to the world as children, but that we're taught to present only certain parts of ourselves that actually creates that fundamental separation that is one of the original traumas that we all suffer as human beings. And so the idea is, in the work that we, all, that we do as psychiatrists and therapists, is to help people bring back those parts of themselves together into one person, so that the person you present to the outside world is actually the same as the person that you are.
1: So in terms of raising teenagers, there is a retrospective of defining it as trauma But as parents, we worry when something happens that we should jump on it immediately and get that kid into therapy or talking to us about it. But we haven't yet, we don't have the information yet to know whether it's been traumatic for that child. What are we supposed to do?
3: (laughs) Yeah, it's a really challenging situation to navigate. I think that the good news is that the answer is actually rather simple. It's simpler than most people think, which is that that if, if we think about Intense, what trauma is, is intense, fearful experiences that happen where a child or any person does not feel in control of their experience or they feel like victimized by the experience. After something like that happens, regardless of whether we feel it was difficult or how challenging we thought it was, if we continue to make that child feel guilty, ashamed, afraid, uh, like a victim after the event, then we're actually repeating or what we call recapitulating the trauma, it reinforces it into the person. And so the antidote to that is that after we perceive anyone, adult or child or teenager, to go through a very challenging and difficult situation, the single most important thing is to just provide that antidote to their sense of fear or guilt or shame that they might be feeling coming out of that experience, which is safety and love, and the most essential ways to do that are, are soothing touch, soothing music, providing sort of a general, generally soothing environment, with one of the easiest ways to do that is actually providing sort of undivided listening or empathic listening, where we're really focused on just hearing what that person's saying, without waiting to speak, without waiting to say our own piece, without waiting to fix the problem, which is very... It seems challenging at first, but it just takes a little bit of practice, and it's something that is one of the first things that we learn as therapists that is actually interesting in particular because we realize that when we learn it as therapists that actually any human can do it, particularly if you learn it young. But for any of us, that's the single most important thing that we can do to provide support for anyone who's been through a challenging experience, or something that they might consider traumatic. And that can be as simple as making eye-to-eye contact with someone, nodding when they nod, shaking your head when they shake their head, smiling when they smile, frown when they frown, and just be there and what we call hold space for someone in a non-judgmental way where they feel like they can just express themselves and get out what happened. And that idea of being able to have a safe space where you can just get out the feelings that come up from an experience you had is actually healing in and of itself. And, th- and that holding space is the most important part that we talk about, that safe space is what we talk about as the most important part with, that a good therapist does, although unfortunately, there are a lot of therapists who, who don't do that as well as we would like, but we can all do that for each other in any moment of stress or, or challenge of any kind.
1: I'm just gonna follow up because I don't still really understand how I can listen, but at some point I'm supposed to respond, right? And so is that response just mirroring what they've said, or is there any editorializing in that response?
3: That's a great question. I think that we often think that people want more of our editorial, more of our advice than they do. And they usually do at some point afterwards. But what usually happens in the moment is that people really just kind of feel like overwhelmed out of sorts, just have lots of going on, lots of restlessness, lots of discomfort, and not sure what to do with it or what it means. And everybody generally wants to try to sort that out on their own before they start getting editorial and advice from someone else. And so if we put ourselves in that position ourselves, we can see that very clearly. And then the, the answer becomes, instead of giving advice or, or giving feedback about the situation, it's really just saying, looking the person in the eye and saying, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. You don't need to know. We don't need to know what they've been through. We don't need to, you know, we don't need to say, oh, I, I know what you've been through. I know your experience. I've been there before. None of that matters because it's not about you, it's about them. And the whole point is to keep the focus on them and just letting them know: I hear you, I see you, I hear what you're saying. That must have been really difficult for you. That must have been really challenging for you. Those kind of simple statements are what we call validation statements. So they let the person know that they've been heard. And they let the person know that they are still being heard and that they can keep talking as long as they need to. And that the other person on the other side who's listening knows that they're having a hard time.
0: Okay. So there is evidence that trauma changes our DNA. And I'm thinking about our teens who just spent the last year and a half living with trauma. Yikes. What does that say for them?
3: Evolutionarily, it seems, from the work of Dr. Rachel Yehuda and Dr. Eric Kandel and many other neuroscientists over the years, the last especially 40 years, that it's we always knew that tra- traumatic events or negative events caused some changes to our biology. We just weren't exactly sure how it happened. And we used to see it as increased cortisol and, and stress hormones or decreased cortisol and stress hormones and just didn't know why that was happening and how it persisted over time, including over generations. And so now we know, thanks to the work of Dr. Rachel Yehuda and, and many others, is that it's very clear that we know the connect... We, we understand more about the connection between how stress actually changes the expression of our stress response genes... And anything in the environment actually changes the expression of those genes. So if negative challenging stuff happens, then we need to be more prepared to overcome challenges, right? So if our body is exposed to a very challenging environment growing up, we need to be in a state where our body is able to get ready to overcome more challenges as they present themselves to us. So epigenetically means that our that or or it's really on the dna which tells the dna little chemical markings called methylation patterns that we can now measure that tell the dna to turn up or turn down depending on whether those genes are helpful for navigating stress or helpful for recovery or helpful for reproduction or helpful for immunity or what have you and so the more stress we face the more our body gets trained effectively to be in a state that's able to respond to stress which is good until that stress becomes so overwhelming and so challenging that we stop being able we stop overcoming it and we start getting it starts turning into what we call distress which can cause disease over time when it's not addressed. And so that's so the so the reason why this is important is because we understand that that stress and challenges get actually cause changes to our biology at the same time positive experiences like doing breath work or doing yoga, meditation, mindfulness, giving and receiving more hugs and intimate non-sexual touch and eye-to-eye contact and empathy and all these things we're talking about are also likely shifting, even therapy, are also likely shifting and seem to be shifting those gene expression patterns the opposite way. And so we have the ability to now look at reversing these changes that are happening to us from stress just by doing the positive recovery practices that actually we've known for thousands of years changed the way we feel, but we haven't known why. So now we can actually have a full story where if you have something challenging happen to you, that support we were talking about earlier of the eye-to-eye contact, getting support from your loved ones, making sure you have a tight friend group around and people who can listen to you and understand you without judging you and provide you that supportive environment is absolutely the most critical thing to making sure that we overcome whatever challenges we face successfully and that they don't
2: hold us back.
1: Well, that's, I mean, that's not an only, right? Like that's huge to have all of those things in place. But I want to go back to, we started talking about trauma and then I was going to shift us into talking about stress and anxiety, but you threw in the word stress even to discuss trauma. They're different, right? Are they, are all three different? Is there, are they overlapping?
3: So stress is unavoidable right? Stress is that thing that is just around us that is reminding us of things we have to do, responsibilities that we have. Stress is what we call an amount of work or responsibility that starts to become what we perceive as overwhelming or pressured, time-sensitive, right? Things that require us to do things. That's what we call stress. Some of those are easy and some of those are, more, are harder and then there's everything in between. Anxiety... Is not good or bad either. Stress, stress is both good and bad. Stress and everything in between. It can be what we call eustress, eu stress that forces us to grow, as we were talking about earlier, and then distress, which is stress that challenges us but is seemingly much harder or or unconquerable that causes us over time discomfort and then eventually disease, and that's. That's in the moment. You stress versus distress is like a decision that we make in the moment about how we see stress. That is a perspective thing. We can decide whether we look at stress as something that is like a why me situation. Why do I have to deal with this right now? Why do I have to overcome this? Why does this always happen to me kind of thing? Or, and that makes it distress. Or we can look at it as another opportunity for self improvement, for growth, for overcoming another challenge, learning new skills as mundane as that stress might be, or boring as it might seem. When we take control of the situation by overcoming the stress and facing it and going through it, then we we either grow or we decide to distract or numb ourselves to the stress and not want to deal with it and push it off to the side and say, I'll deal with you later, which is something we all do at different times. And then that causes anxiety. Anxiety is the signal that is also not positive or negative. It's just a signal that comes into our body that says, you have stuff that you need to take care of. That signal of anxiety is all that is. It's just, you. I have stuff that I need to take care of. I have stuff that's requiring of my attention. When we think about it, when we have lots of things around us that require our attention, that we have control over, and we address that situation, our anxiety goes down significantly. And it continues to go down over time as we do that. However, when we continue to ignore the things that are causing our anxiety or that are sending us those stress signals, then the anxiety grows and builds up and up and up. And we start to feel more out of control of our lives and start to feel like there's more things going on around us that we can't keep track of. That's when we start to feel what we call high anxiety or like panic-like situations, which also can happen to everyone. And then trauma is what happens way down the road. Like we were talking about earlier, trauma is the way that you look back, usually weeks or months later. It's usually months later in the three to six months or more time frame after something has happened, after a challenging event has happened. That's when we look back three to six months down the road and say, okay, what happened as a result of this thing did it cause long-lasting negative feelings or discomfort or distress that I'm feeling now That I or things that I'm having trouble with now? Did it change the way I see myself three to six months later for the worse or prevent me from developing new ways to cope in my life? Then that's when we would start to look at it as trauma. But I think it's very, very important to make sure that we use the words properly because when we misuse words, we actually construct a reality for ourselves that is not necessarily accurate. So we have a lot of stressful things that happen to us. Those stressful things might seem unpleasant in the moment, but they actually might be good things. They might be important things that we have to face, like learning how to drive, for instance, in a busy place can be very, very challenging, but we have to do it to become good drivers so that we can be able to be competent on the road and not put ourselves or anyone else at risk. So. That kind of challenging situation, we see as something simple that everyone needs to do to get their driver's license to overcome as distressing or challenging as it is. There are other things that are that we don't think of that way or that we think of in different ways and ultimately dealing with the stress as they come, knowing that stress is not avoidable. We can't avoid it, it's gonna happen. So it's coming up with better ways to deal with it and having a, the most supportive environment around us that we can that allows us to go through life not eliminating trauma, but at least minimizing it as much as possible.
0: Can we segue into your research that led to your invention that's changing lives, a wearable called Apollo Neuro?
3: So Apollo, we actually came up with because Apollo represents one of the primary ancient Greek gods of medicine and healing that passed the end sun, which is like the whole encompassing of everything else that passed the caduceus, which is the symbol of one of the symbols of Western medicine, which is a staff with the snakes on it, to Hermes to give the gift of medicine to humanity. And that staff in particular represents the balance of the body. It represents the balance of recovery and stress, fear and love, the autonomic nervous system, the stress response system, and the parasympathetic system are all sort of knit into this interweaving snakes pattern on the staff. And so that became a symbol that was very much representative of the balance that Apollo restores to the body. So Apollo is a is a wearable that kind of looks like an Apple Watch that doesn't have any face, it doesn't tell time, and doesn't track anything really on you. It delivers these gentle vibrations that signal safety to the body through the skin, which is the same way that someone holding your hand or giving you a hug on a bad day would, would touch you and you'd almost instantly feel better and not feel as worried or or afraid because the skin has touch receptors in it that are the most highly evolved and sensitive to the safety signals in our environment and we know this because of the work of some of the folks we were mentioning before like eric kandel showed that you can activate these neural receptors in the skin that actually exist for millions of years, long going back into ancient animals that hugged to convey safety to each other in caves and and in the wild. So we still have these and they're hardwired receptors in our skin and they're also in our ears for detecting safe sounds and they're also in our eyes for detecting safe sights, And so there's different things that we can experience that can help us feel safe and calm and touch is one of the most powerful. And so Apollo is basically, the simplest way of thinking about it is we figured out at the University of Pittsburgh how to compose music for your skin rather than for your ears, and your, our skin responds in a similar way that our ears would respond to feeling or, or hearing like our favorite song on a bad day.
0: If you're getting relief from it, does that mean you will be wearing it forever? You won't be wearing it forever. How does that work? Like so, or do you just not use it for certain activities, if you will, or certain times?
3: So I still, I still use my Apollo and many other people who have used it. You know, I'm one of the longest time users, so I've been using it for, I don't know, I guess almost four years now with continued benefit. And lots of other people use it in this way. But the way that they use it is it becomes, at first, when people start using it, they tend to use it all the time. They use it, you know, many hours a day for many days a week, which is actually when we see people getting the best results, especially over the first three to six months, then what's interesting is because we're tracking all of this data from that tens of thousands of people using it in the wild, we see that people actually decrease their use—not to stop using it, but they use it what we call more intentionally. So what this means is that the experience is not just: I wake up in the morning, I turn on my Apollo, it's on all day, and then I go to and then when I go to bed, I turn it on, it's on all night. It's not—they're not using it quite like that as much anymore. They actually use it for very specific activities. So I'll use it for 30 minutes to get up in the morning, I'll use it to get energy in the morning, then I'll use it for, you know, an hour for my afternoons, an hour or two for my afternoon slump after lunch, or when I'm trying to focus in a meeting around like the late, late morning time. And then I'll use it to wind down at night for half an hour or something before bed. And then they're using it in more very specific ways. And it becomes more specific over time. And as people use it, they feel that they don't need it as much and then they actually become more sensitive to the vibration so that they feel the effects more quickly, but they don't need to have it on as much of the day, which is called a, a learning effect or a sensitization effect, which comes from teaching the body how to do something on its own. A lot of people when surveyed, people who, who, mo- who monitor their, their bi- what we call their biometrics, their heart rate, their heart rate variability, their respiratory rate, their sleep, people who monitor these things should, you should generally have a reason for why you measure, right? Why am I monitoring it? Because if you don't have a reason and you're just tracking the numbers all the time, then you're often overwhelming yourself with even more data, more information, more things to make decisions on that aren't necessarily that helpful for you if you don't know how to interpret it and you don't have a reason to, to do it. And so for most people, when you survey them across the board who do data tracking of their bodies, we actually, using these kinds of devices, we actually see that people feel more stressed out by tracking more data. That's probably like over uh, roughly 50% of people who track their data, maybe more, report feeling more stressed out because they just have more information coming in. They don't know what to do with it. So if you know how to interpret your data and you're not sure what's going on with your body because you're having lots of symptoms, you're having lots of issues that you don't know how to deal with, then the data can help you restore patterns in your day to day life around structure that, that supports your health. And if you do that again very intentionally and you use the data in that way, trended over time, you can use that data to really help restore a sense of rhythm to your health. And those rhythms are really important for maintaining balance in our lives, like the day and night rhythms, right? Having a roughly the same time you go to bed every night and the same time you wake up every morning roughly so that you get regular sleep and that sleep is very restorative in that time. That being said, if you're already connected with your body and you know when you feel good and you know when you don't feel good, having the numbers doesn't necessarily impact you that much because you know that if you drink alcohol before bed that you're probably not going to sleep as well and you're going to feel worse in the morning. You know if you drink caffeine in the morning, you're probably going to end up taking alcohol or some kind of sedative at night to try to go to bed or doing something to try to wind down before bed because you're still up and your brain's moving fast. And There are different ways that we can listen to our bodies to, to feel what's going on. and That's really the most important thing, is learning how to feel the signals that our bodies are telling us so we can make better decisions. So the biggest surprise that we had was the, the, the huge variety of people that Apollo worked for. Originally, you know, we were really trying to figure out something that could work for a lot of people that was safe, that could just go out into the real world as a wearable that didn't require a prescription. And we found that, and that was really great. And when we did our original studies, we saw that it worked for, you know, 80% of people in the lab of healthy people. We weren't sure what effect that would have when we brought it out into the real world. And so we, as we brought it out into the real world and started to test it in, you know, hundreds of people, thousands of people in their day-to-day lives we started to see very similar reports coming back from people. And that was very encouraging because it, it helped us understand that there are certain frequency patterns, certain vibration patterns with music as with touch that can reliably calm the body that can reliably bring the body into a state where people just feel a little better, a little more soothed, a little more in control. And that takes the edge off, you know, 90% of people's negative experience and sort of brings them back into a centered place of strength. And that's really cool. So that was one of the most surprising things that we found. It was very exciting when we were developing this.
1: Dr. David Rabin, thank you so much. Thank you for your innovation and for changing our lives. We are both sleeping much better and feeling better using the Apollo. So thank you.
3: Thank you. I'm so glad you're enjoying it. And thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page
1: or email editor at yourteenmag.com. If you're someone who reads an article and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our podcast the same way. Please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about Your Teen with Sue and Steph. And do us a favor and review and rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at
0: evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.
1: Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time.